It's about being mentally sound. You can be the strongest, the fastest, the one with the most endurance, fine. If your body is capable of doing that, that's great. But if your mind is not capable of kind of letting your body do that, you're never going to perform to your full, full potential. You're about to listen to an interview for EWS. Intending to provide educational information from various domains in psychology, physical exercise or motor learning, an experienced professional joins in a conversation with our founder, assisting EWS mission of building a mindset and methodology that can optimize both sport performance and mental health. Hope you enjoy and for that I leave you with your host Gonçalo Marques. Hi there and welcome to another EWS interview. On this one, I follow along a relevant thematic that appeared in the last interviews, more specifically in the big topic of mindfulness, and shortly descripted this is a concept characterized not by a mind that is full of things, as the name implies, but by a posture or attitude where a person is fully aware of the present moment and without judgment. This by itself seems simple and tasteless, but there's more intricacies to it, as you'll see. And the ways to go about it, to practice and to reach its benefits are too broad to even have them condensed in a one-hour interview. I can remind you that we have at EWS Podcast two recent interviews with poker pro and coach Tommy Angelo and with clinical psychologist and psychotherapist Luís Gonçalves, this one in Portuguese, where we touched upon this subject, and as if I wasn't satisfied enough, I brought you today another perfect guest to talk about us, about mindfulness to us. <laughs> we went over things like how mindfulness principles can be applied to student-athletes' lives, talked about ways on how to be at ease and even grow professionally and personally from difficult emotions, talked about appropriate times to be in autopilot mode, and, on the other side, some hindrances that this mode uh, can bring, the type of self-criticism that functions as an impairing element to performance, and more, we touched on another topics and curious facts. Wait, just a useful reminder. We know you're investing precious time here, so you can also efficiently work your listening experience by checking the timestamps at the end of this episode show notes. You can click over them to jump directly to the pieces that you find most interesting to your needs and wishes. As for my wish, your review and subscription to EWS Podcast. By doing so, we will be able to offer the listeners more quality content regularly to improve the mental game in sports and work. Until you decide on that, keep enjoying this. The guest is Dr. Tim Pinot, a licensed clinical psychologist and co-founder of the Mindful Sport Performance Enhancement Institute, MSPE. Also alongside this, he was co-developer of the MSPE program, a leading mental training program for athletes and coaches, which includes six in-depth, semi-structured sections designed to help athletes and coaches improve their practice and learning processes in non-conventional ways, And despite this, I must say, this is all based on fresh science and especially based on the works of another pioneer on this area that brought ancient meditation practices into the science realm, John Kabat-Zinn, the creator also of MBSR, Mindful-Based Stress Reduction Programs, 
and a man that our guest will speak a little more about because it's just worthy. Dr. Tim Pinot has been researching, publishing and presenting on mindfulness-based approach to performance enhancement over, for over 10 years and has a book called Mindful Sport Performance Enhancement, Mental Training for Athletes and Coaches, Systematic Approaches to Mental Training in Sports, where, among other things and episodes that they talk about there, it shares a model relating these practices with the emergence of the flow state, the in-the-zone mood that athletes so much desire to be in. He also applies this knowledge base regularly in his work and private consultations with individual athletes and college sports teams. In addition, Dr. Pinot has a private practice in Washington, D.C., where he offers psychotherapy to individuals and couples. Plus, let me say, <clears throat> out of curiosity, I cited his program, MSPE, in my master's thesis dissertation as a possible option to deal with negative perfectionism and some not-so-good orientations in sports performers around their goals. I got in contact with him via my internship supervisor at the time I was just about out of college and where he gladly presented me the podcast of this person, which is the Mindful Sport Performance Podcast, a space where he and top researcher Keith Kaufman interview other experts, always having in mind this bringing of the principles of mindfulness into the sports world to benefit athletes and coaches alike. Way, excuse me, before you continue on for the episode, I will just ask you for a review. This is a common request, I know, and I imagine it can be tedious to do so, to divert now, and I am aware you as a listener just want to grow through. However, if you do so on Apple Podcasts or Podchaser, it makes an important contribution for EWS growth and for us to keep providing relevant contents for you to actualize your sports practice and mental game and also for me to be able to continue to bring in great guests. Moreover, each month we randomly select their two winners to receive exclusive material that will assist them reaching their full sporting potential. Also, it is important for me to hear your feedback, so head over there please, the links are in the description as always alongside with the timestamps. See ya! And so, with this love and experience in helping athletes and other performers, this doctor is here today to share some guiding principles around the work he does with them, and alongside this, we will navigate through some examples where this knowledge can be applied. Plus, I'll also want to address some implications of when these principles are not applied, or when they are accompanied by some misperceptions or unhelpful attitudes. So, for all of this, I'm thrilled to receive and welcoming you, Timothy Pino. Thank you so much, Gonzalo. I'm so happy to be here. Yeah, me too. I discovered your recent podcast a while ago. We can go with that further down the road. But first, please share with us a little bit of your journey uh, coming to the place you are nowadays professionally. I know you had plenty years of researching and also acting in clinical and sports psychology realms. So ride us along there, please. Uh, yeah, happy to share. Um, <clears throat> I think I kind of got to where I am and feels like kind of a funny way because it, it wasn't something I ever planned to do. I had been an athlete, you know, in high school and in college. I was a, I was a rower and was fascinated by kind of the psychology of athletes and kind of what, what made us tick. But um, 
never really saw myself pursuing sports psychology. I, I was really more interested in, in clinical psych. And, and I, as I was applying to graduate schools, I was even kind of applying for, for research programs that were about like psychotherapy integration and um, these more like clinical topics. And then I, I remember interviewing with my colleague, Dr. Carol Glass at, at the Catholic University of America. Um, and she told me about this research that she was doing with a former student of hers, our other colleague, Dr. Keith Kaufman, um, on this intersection between mindfulness and sport. And I was also really personally interested in mindfulness and meditation, but again, never saw that as like a, an avenue for academic study. It was just like a personal interest. And to hear that someone, a research lab was doing research, looking at mindfulness and athletes, I just, it blew my mind. I got so excited. Um, and, and thankfully it ended up working out for me to join the program. And, and, and I, and I've been working with Carol and Keith ever since. Yeah. So that's the response of how it all connects your passions. And I'm glad to hear that the program you are mentioning is mindful sports performance enhancement. Yes. Yes. And you also mentioned your interest in psychotherapy integration, which is also a passion of mine. Yeah. And my master's degree was also around that. We can connect that along our conversation, mm -hmm. I guess. Yeah. But um, yeah, you also have a book and you have a foreword by John Kabat-Zinn. Yeah. And uh, I would like to know the experience you have with him or uh, some of your colleagues, what type of contact and what is the importance of having a man like this writing on your book? Uh, but first present him, please, because I, 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 I didn't mention that. Oh, sure. Yeah. Well, I mean, we were thrilled. So, I mean, so John Kabat-Zinn is just this huge name, so, uh, certainly in, in the United States, you know, uh, when it comes to kind of mindfulness finding its way into psychology. Uh, he was one of the first people to start doing rigorous research on a mindfulness-based program. And so his, some of his first published studies are actually looking at mindfulness and its application to chronic pain. Um, and so through that work, he developed what's now considered kind of the gold standard of mindfulness-based programs, which is mindfulness-based stress reduction, or MBSR. Um, and, and that has now become applied to you know, depression and anxiety. I mean, could it, you name it, there is some research that looks at how mindfulness benefits these, this range of uh, clinical diagnoses. But what a lot of people don't know is that some of his very early work was actually in sport. Uh, hmm. He presented this poster at a conference in Denmark back in 1985 that was based on like uh, a really small kind of research study that he did with rowers at Harvard University. And it was the same mindset of like, can we apply mindfulness to athletes and what impact will it have? And, and, and these athletes ended up, you know, they performed better than expectation. And, you know, I think there were some Olympic rowers in there too. Like some of them went on to medal, but it was just, it was a very kind of light foray into this, into this world of like mindfulness and sport. Um, and he didn't really do much with that, you know, th throughout the rest of his career. But when Carol and Keith started working together and they started to explore this mindfulness and sport connection, they found this old poster and reached out to him to ask if he had like a copy or if he could, you know, share kind of what he remembered from that time. Because of course, back in 85, it was, you know, a physical poster. There's nothing digital. Yeah. Um, and so he was kind enough to retype that poster and send, send, us a, send us a draft, essentially, of his findings. And, and it was really kind of encouraging, saying, you know, this is, a, this is kind of a line of research that he really wished he could have continued on with. Uh, and he thought there was some really great potential there, but just 
you know, his career ended up taking him in a different direction. So he was thrilled that we were kind of like picking up the ball. And, and so, you know, years went by and Carol and Keith were doing research on what was a very, um, a, a different version of MSPE or mindfulness core performance enhancement. Then I joined the team um, and we kind of adapted it and built it up. And uh, we've continued to, to research and work on it ever since. And when we wrote the book, we ended up reaching back out to, to John Kabat-Zinn to let him know, one, that we've, hey, we've continued on with this work uh, and we're kind of about to publish this book. It's, it's so very much connected to this early work that you've done. Mm-hmm. And, you know, would you be willing to kind of write this forward? And he was gracious enough to do it, which was just amazing um, yeah, yeah, to have that kind absolutely. of connection with someone like that. Yeah. I would like to know, and I guess many of our listeners, some results of the research world. Uh, we can go for that. But first, introduce to us uh, the program itself, how it emerged and uh, when it was born and uh, some characteristics of it, please. Sure. Yeah. So so this program, so Mindful Sport Performance Enhancement, is it's designed as a group-based program. And we have done some research looking at kind of working with intact teams, versus working with just a mixed group of athletes versus working with coaches, you know, so like all these different kinds of groups, I think can, can work for the program. Um, and it's, you know, it's, it's funny cause I'll, I'll walk you through the, the structure of it. But one of the things we really emphasize is how flexible it is. So even though in the book, right, we talk about like 90 minute sessions, six weeks in a row. So it's a kind of the six session intervention. Uh, and in each session we are doing, uh, it's kind of like three components. Right? There's an experiential component. We're, we're doing a meditation with the athletes, you know, in session and talking about it. There's the didactic component. We're introducing ideas and concepts, teaching them about mindfulness. Um, and then there's the discussion component. We are, we are inviting participation constantly because we really want the athletes who are engaged in this program to feel engaged, right? We want them to be grappling with these questions, right? We want them to, we want them to be skeptical. Like we want them to be unsure. We want them to have the experience of not knowing, right? And then through the process of meditation, kind of coming to see, oh wow, this really is starting to make sense. But it is, you know, we really pitch it as an experiential program because I think I could I could stand up in front of a group of athletes and be pretty convincing about the benefits of mindfulness. But if they don't internally have the experience of how it's going to impact them, they're not going to feel motivated to do it. Um, and so we've really kind of geared this program to giving people that experience. Um, but like I said, we have this like six week, 90 minute structure. But when I actually do this with teams, I don't know if I've ever actually followed that to the letter because some teams don't have 90 minutes. So you got to do it in an hour. Some teams can't meet six weeks in a row. So you got to spread them out. You know, so. I think we, as, as kind of the people who are delivering these services, need to be really sensitive to the different constraints and needs of any team that we're working with. Yeah, expecting that and bringing that flexible part also. I guess we will get more sense of that flexibility on the trainings, but I, I love the structure, the ideal structure, let's say, of how you've done that. Um, and then incorporating these in practice and much likely, as you say, on everyday life. Uh, I, I like to see these uh, not as a dissociated tool or f- for some narrow specific moments to apply and like, okay, then for today type of thing. So yeah, like you say, also awareness and acceptance of what is ultimately allows for greater responsiveness to the self and the environment, providing freedom from the reflexive or automatic reactions that so often guide our actions. 
I would like to unravel this quote, but first, yeah, tell me from your experience and the athletes that you uh, got in touch with, the evolution that they felt going through these, this program. Yeah, sure. Uh, and so I, I tend to work with a lot of college athletes and college teams, which is, I mean, it creates a kind of unique environment because they are both students and athletes. And a lot of the kind of the mental hurdles that come up with regard to sport performance, I think also apply in academic settings. And so one of the things that we often find in terms of the evolution of how athletes come to apply this is that they start to see the impact outside of sport first. You know, hmm. so after, you know, a week or two of the program, they might come in and talk about, you know, that they can focus better in class, you know, or at least that they're more aware of when their mind wanders and they can come back, right? Or, or they, they don't feel as reactive and so they don't get in fights with their roommate, right? Or they're, you know, they don't get in fights with their parents when they call home. And so they start to notice these sometimes subtle, sometimes not so subtle changes in other parts of their life. And that really gets them thinking like, oh, maybe this could work for sport too, right? It helps enhance a little bit of that motivation. <clears throat> um, but I also think one of the reasons why that happens is because we recommend uh, that the program be given in the off season. So, you know, because it, it's a lot to like take in all this new information and try to apply these new concepts when you're also in the midst of competing. <clears throat> and studying in college, yeah. Yeah. And so, so yeah, so they have all these opportunities to kind of apply mindfulness to these other parts of their life. And then as they get more familiar with it, they can really begin to bring it into to sport. And the thing that I love hearing the most uh, is that when we start to get towards the end of the program, when we introduce the sport meditation, which I think is one of the things that really makes MSBE unique, you know, we create, we create this very specific bridge from the mindfulness practice that we talk about to like actual sport performance um, and, and help guiding them through like the actual physical motions of their sport in a, in a meditative way. Um, but one of the things we often encourage athletes to do is kind of take that basic idea and create something on their own. You know, what, res what resonates to them? And that's how I know that they're starting to get it, is when they come in and they say, you know, I didn't do the sport meditation like you had explained it. I actually did this other thing. Um, and I'm like, yes, that's awesome. Like, you're supposed to take this and make it your own. Uh, and so I, once I hear athletes start to do that, I know we're, we've got some traction. Yeah, that, that precisely underlines that part of being responsive, not as you as the, the mentor there, mm -hmm. may I use that word? Yeah. But yeah, to adjust and follow through the motions of our particular sport, of being able to critically analyze what's being taught. And uh, yeah, from there, our decisions and efficacy in practice uh, may be affected in a positive manner. We can correct ourselves and... Uh, Yeah, I, I see responsiveness like that. You can correct or add something here, please, on your views around that. And uh, please explain that piece of uh, the provided freedom from reflex reflexive sorry, yeah. reactions uh, that I suppose sometimes hinder one's performance qualities. Yeah. Well, and this, I don't think it's unique to sport at all, but right, because we all kind of go on autopilot a lot of the time. You know, we have our own habits and tendencies And yeah, I think you're exactly right. We, we react reflexively. It's just automatically to so much stuff in our life. And I think mindfulness really, really kind of allows us to create space, right? So that we're not kind of reflexively reacting, but we're actually thoughtfully responding, right? We're able to take in the information and when we need to, to change. Because I think that's 
Like that's one of the issues that I think a lot of athletes do have is, is this rigidity. You know, they have it, they have it in their mind, like there's a right way to train. Um, there's a, there's a very specific definition of what it means to be successful. And that is to always win. Uh, and, and it, it leaves no room for individuals needs and preferences, right? It, it leaves very little room for self-compassion when we don't meet these high bars of winning all the time, because in what sport is success really measured by winning all the time? No, no sport, right? Like you think about, you've even got sports like, like baseball where a batter, a batter can hit the ball a third of the time and be a great batter, right? So there's so much kind of quote unquote failure. Yeah. Yeah. Much more failure than success in some occasions. Yeah. And so Yeah, being able to relate to that differently and not think like, oh, I'm a failure, but like, oh, that was another thing that happened, like a neutral thing. I did not hit that pitch, uh -huh. but there's going to be another pitch, right? Like I got to be fresh. I got to be sharp for the next pitch. And so I think the mindfulness practice really helps athletes to, to let go of some of that rigidity, right? To open themselves up to think about like, other definitions of success um, or mm -hmm. other ways to train because <clears throat> that has been one of the biggest obstacles that we've that we've hit when it comes to introducing MSPE to teams is that they're so used to training physically, right? So there's not kind of a, a mental model that they have of what mental training looks and feels like. Uh, and so one of the things we really emphasize is that like, you got to take mental training seriously in the same way you take physical training seriously. It's not just this little thing that you add on to the end of the day. It is something that you prioritize in the same way that you prioritize physical training. Yeah. And, and because First, it's important to recognize that this is a matter of improving on our awareness, on our focus in the field, on and, and off the field, yeah. may I say. And as you said, other benefits on emotion regulation and motivation are also there. And so this is, uh, I will use the word tool, but uh, yeah, it can be a thing that can be incorporated and not being imposed or Uh, messing around with the methods that are being technically used by them, by their coaches in their particular sport. This is an integ integrational thing. Yeah, and we we really try to try to emphasize that a lot. That concept of integration, mm -hmm. because yeah, I think if you've got if you've got a bunch of athletes on board, but their coach knows nothing about mindfulness, like that, I I don't think this training is going to work very well, right? Because you as the service provider, right? Maybe you're meeting with these athletes once a week. But they're with their coach the other six days of the week. You know, like you need the coach on board. You need the coach to get it. So one of the things that we really promote is actually that the coaches have their own mindfulness practice um, because they need to be kind of speaking from a place of authentic experience when they're trying to get their athletes to be more mindful. Um, and I mean, in the, in the college world, right, you know, you've got a team which is in kind of the broader context of an athletic department, like we would even suggest or, or, or try to get the administrators um, and the other kind of stakeholders involved, your strength and conditioning coaches, um, your, your PTs, right? Get all them to learn about mindfulness as well. So that when this athlete bounces from practice with coach to the weight room with the strength and conditioning trainer, to the recovery room with the PT who's helping ice their arm, right? Each one of those authority figures is, is integrating mindfulness into how they are delivering their particular service, right? The strength and conditioning coaches telling athletes to pair their motions with their breath, to be really present as the weights go up and down, right? The, you've got the, you know, the, the PTs, you know, guiding, guiding athletes through, like, just feel what it is like to have the ice on your shoulder, right? Like, just sit with that, sit with that feeling. And all these little subtle signals that are getting delivered to the athlete that, like, 
this is a way of being. Um, mm. It impacts all of these aspects of your life as an athlete and beyond. You know, I, you know, you said, you know, you, you use the word tool, um, and I do think that's what athletes are looking for. They're looking for a tool, and I think that's what they think mindfulness might be. Oh, I'm going to get anxious on the field, and then I can meditate, and then I'll be better. And it's like, mm, no, it doesn't quite work like that because. Mm-hmm. These aren't tools, right? This is a way of being. It is a way of interacting with your world that is just different. And yes, it applies to sports, but it also applies to all these other parts of your life. Well, what you just heard was something probably easy to understand. But to assimilate this or put it into practice is a harder task for sure. At EWS, we aim to translate the theory and mental principles into practice the best way possible but it all comes down to you. Take a moment to really reflect. Is this good for me? What can I do today to implement it? Again, the keyword, practice. How can you translate this into practice? Practice it and go ahead. Keep enjoying the process of efficiently working sports. I love that integration also with other professionals. Yeah. Uh, but from m- more of an individual standpoint, a goal can be being more at ease with difficult emotions on the field because this is an internal work. This is mindfulness involves looking inside, uh, recognizing what's happening, recognizing our mental processes, bringing ourselves back to the present moment and put the focus where it's important. Um, this on uh, a sports goal like state but uh, yeah can you tell us more how these specifically can be helpful uh, the program or some principles with being at ease with difficult emotions sure i mean i think it's there are, are so many ways this could have a helpful yeah, impact yeah. it's actually your question is making me think of one athlete in particular um she was a young woman on one of the college teams i was working with a, a lacrosse player who was incredibly talented um Uh, but she was so driven by anger. Um, and, and even though she was kind of a, a beast on the field, she would get so many penalties. Um, and, you know, so like there'd be kind of a number of games in a given season where she would be, she would be moved, removed from the game because she would get one too many penalties. Um, and so it's like, in some ways, like that anger was kind of good fuel for her, but it, it, it really it really hurt her decision-making um, because then she... So, so just to clarify, penalties in lacrosse is like... Like a uh, foul. Fault? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, normally, because it means and, like you, you hit somebody in an incorrect way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know? Um, and so, yeah, it's like, we all understand that impulse. You know, someone hits you, you get angry, you want to you hit, hit them back. Um, but yeah, she could not regulate that emotion. Um, and so the... I mean, she was one of these one of these athletes that I saw so much change in, uh, because by you know by the end of it, we'd worked together for for a few years before she graduated. You know, she was barely getting any of these fouls, any of these penalties, because uh, she could she just she learned how to create some distance between her and that anger, how to make good choices, how to be present and understand. All right, well, someone just high sticked me, right, uh, and the ref didn't see that, but I'm pissed, and so I'm gonna kind of hit them with my stick right back she kind of was able to, in the moment, realize, oh, that's not a good decision. It's not a good decision for me. It's not a good decision for my team. It's not going to get me what I want, right? And just that presence of mind completely changed her game. And she was a much more effective player. 
I think she felt better about herself, but also she was able to do more for her team because she wasn't getting pulled out of the game. Yeah, I see that the benefit there of not getting boiled up in those moments, of not getting entangled in those, I, I, I cannot say harmful emotions, but they are not helpful for that moment. We want to focus on the game, on the next play, what we can do best. And uh, yeah, returning to the present moment, focusing on the task again and not reacting in that way that will be bad. Uh, yeah, what's well, the thing, right? When it, whether it's kind of anxiety or anger, or, you know, any emotion really, we can really let it pull us out of the present moment. I mean, because if we, if we get angry, we, then we start to think about why we're angry. And the longer we think about why we're angry, the longer we stay angry, but we're completely missing what's happening in the present moment. Right, this player, she got fouled by someone else, right? And so she's angry. But instead of paying attention to the play that's happening right now, she's just holding on to her anger. Or mm -hmm. same thing for anyone holding on to their anxiety, holding on to their sadness, right? And being able to, to, to make space. To say, I may be angry in this moment, but that's not the only emotion I have. That's not the only thing I can focus on. In fact, mm -hmm. I get to choose where I put my focus. And I'm going to say, yeah. you know what? I'm not focusing on my anger right now. I'm going to focus on this. I'm going to focus on this play. Being more of a ruler of our emotions instead of having the emotions rule us. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, having choice. And it's one of the things we emphasize so much. It's like mindfulness gives you choice. Hmm. Yeah. Another possibility is canalizing. Uh, I don't know if that word exists, by the way. <laughs> catalyzing, yeah. let's oh, say. Yeah, catalyzing yeah. the emotions uh, in a proper way uh, to be more efficacious or something on the field. And all these make sense, but... To apply it consistently is another kind of story. And uh, yeah, we can conserve the regard for each one's in idiosyncrasies and the contexts uh, they are involved. Uh, but in practice, let's go for this. Is there some kind of tips you can provide here that can be beneficial for athletes in this sense? Yeah, well, you know, there is no substitute for hard work. You know, it, it takes practice. And, and, and that's another thing that I, I kind of drive home whenever I'm working with an athlete or working with a team. It's like, you have put in so many hours to train your body, you know, like it's so many reps, so many drills, like you probably can't even count the number that you've done, right? It takes that kind of work on the mental side too, you know, which is why in the MSPE program, you know, we're we're exposing the athletes to a range of different kinds of meditations, as well as both formal and informal mindfulness practice, right? Because we, we want them to have as many opportunities as possible to practice this stuff. You know, and so when we're talking about informal practice, we're just asking them to do kind of activities in their daily life, but in a mindful way. Walk into class, washing the dishes, opening a door, and just tuning in. Like, what does it feel like? What moves in my body? Like, what, what emotions come up for me? Just being really present. And funny enough and odd enough, that's hard work, being super focused on the emotions and the feelings mm -hmm. of oh, doing the dishes. Uh, so yeah, my, my mind wandered on that hard work concept because I, I, I feel it is often associating of super exerting ourselves and sometimes leading to burnout of, or something. Uh, some people have their limits uh, more above than others, so they can work harder. We cannot judge that. Uh, but yeah, hard work, you put it there much more elegantly, I guess. Uh, I guess I was right on the comment I, I made, but if you want to add something on there, please go forward. <laughs> no, that does, that does feel right. I mean, because it is hard work. I mean, we're really... 
you're you're asking an athlete when you teach them mindfulness, right? You're asking them to think in a way that they've never thought before, right? You're you're asking them to take some risks, really, right? Like uh, it makes me think about like self compassion. I talk a lot about self compassion with athletes, um, but I often have to wait. I have to wait until we've got a good relationship. I have to wait until they've bought into the mindfulness piece. Uh, before I can right. even introduce self-compassion because that's a real turnoff to athletes because they're mm. they're so used to like this fear-based yeah. culture of sport yeah. that like you got to keep going and and you know like any any giving up is always weakness and like like never ever ever enough and it's like well no like that leaves no room for the times when you really need rest right that leaves no room for being able to let go of mistakes and stay focused on kind of the task at hand um, yeah. And so, yeah, it's hard work to change this perspective. And so it requires, right, like showing up every day to sit and do your meditation, to do your informal practice in the same way that you go to the gym or go to the track or go to the pool. Like it's about yeah. daily practice. That touches me a lot. And uh, as you say, you keep hammering. I, I've seen on the internet, you're saying the guidelines that are provided in the program Uh, they are for building a daily practice to help train the mind in the same dedicated way as the body. And this precise conception, I think, is not that well ingrained on a big portion of athletes, as you are also saying, and teams. They recognize its importance um, and very often wish to invest on that mental side, but then lack on the work they put in around that for whatever reasons, whether for time restraints, whether for not knowing what to do uh, or something else. So uh, again, uh, emphasizing that practical side, um, can you share some examples of some mental practices that one can do on or off the field? Or if it is hard to mention concrete activities there, at least shed on some light on the path. Uh, a good example athlete follows on this journey through mental training. Yeah. Well, I mean, certainly there are a range of different kind of formal mindfulness practices that I think could really benefit athletes. And it's about finding what resonates for you. You know, so we teach kind of a basic breathing meditation, uh, which I would kind of recommend pretty much to anybody. You know, if you could integrate that into your daily practice, even just five or 10 minutes of sitting and observing your breath. Um, and we also kind of expand upon that using different attentional anchors. So maybe it's the breath, maybe it's sounds outside, maybe it's other sensations in the body. Um, but, you know, what I've found, and this is kind of more anecdotal, but it has been my experience, athletes that I've worked with have tend to gravitate, tend to gravitate toward the movement-based meditations. Mm -hmm. um, so rather than doing a sitting meditation, like they like the walking meditation or they like doing the yoga. Uh, and so... You know, I would encourage people to expose themselves to a lot of different kinds of meditations and find the ones that resonate, right? Because if you like it, you're more likely to do it. Um, if you hate it, you're, you know, you're more likely to, to avoid it. Um, and so, so I do think kind of being willing to try lots of different things is really important. Uh, but I've also found that, and I think this, the, the research reflects this too, people are much more likely to do the informal practice than they are to do the formal practice. Um, And so I want athletes, you know, to feel, to feel free to, to, to do that as well. And so rather than prescribe a, a specific activity, what I'll recommend people to do is, is pick something that you do every day. Maybe it's shower, maybe it's brush your teeth, maybe it's walk your dog, but something you do every day. And for the next week or for the next two weeks or whatever it is, do that activity mindfully. Mm -hmm. That will be your kind of meditation practice for this week, you know? And so you 
You know, so if it's walking your dog, right, you pick up the leash and feel the weight and you, you know, look at the texture of the leash and what is it like to, to like interact with your dog and see them get excited as you put the leash on it. And, you know, like, what's it like to feel the sun on your skin as you're walking? Just do that activity with full presence. That is such a great way to begin this integration, right, of mindfulness into your daily routines. Yeah. And if the dog pulls us in a too harsh manner, we can also not judge that and be conscious of the emotional reactions that come in, yes. what we are about to respond to the dog. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. yeah. Um, and yes, uh, that, and in that sense, in that way, people um, cannot use that excuse of not having the time to sit down and be quiet in a quiet place. Um, or even they are saved from from some guilt of not practicing, of not dedicating that half an hour uh, formal uh, practice. Yeah, I like that. Uh, and going along with that, bringing again some benefits of it, and I like I I know that we don't want to emphasize only the benefits because this is a way that go beyond the benefits on the field in sports. But I know these mindfulness practices have uh, some good correlations with the state of flow. Tell us how do you view it, flow, uh, its relevance for any athlete, and what, on simple terms, do the research world show connecting with MSP? Sure, yeah. I, and flow is actually kind of the, the concept that really uh, kind of opened the door, I think, to, to this connection between mindfulness and sport. Um, and I wish my kind of colleague Keith were, was here because, you know, he and Carol were kind of kind of doing the kind of that original research on MSPE um, in the early 2000s and, and made this connection between mindfulness and, and flow because and, and from this theoretical perspective, there's a tremendous amount of overlap. Flow requires kind of full presence, focus on the task at hand, a lack of self-consciousness, right? There's that lack of judgment. And it, it, when you describe a flow state, it really does sound like a very present focused, mindful state. And, um, and so you know, some of our early research was looking at that connection between mindfulness and flow. And sure enough, we absolutely found a really robust connection. Athletes who were reporting a higher propensity to experience flow were also reporting more mindfulness. Um, and in our research since, you know, we have seen, uh, and, and not just with MSPE, but we've, we've seen um, mm -hmm. in the other research uh, with some other mindfulness-based interventions that your propensity to experience flow increases after you have mindfulness practice. Uh, and so, I do think that that um, mindfulness training helps to essentially like lay the groundwork to allow flow to happen more easily. And we kind of outline this in our, in our book uh, that we think it's really kind of the impact of mindfulness on attention regulation and emotion regulation that that really uh -huh. facilitates flow. Um, and the question that just arised from there, do you think that the trainings... Uh, are helping on bringing more often that A game of athletes or are redu reducing the risks of putting them in a B game or below? I mean, my perspective is that it really does open up kind of more opportunities for that A game. Um, mm -hmm. You know, because if an athlete is, is better able to, when they're just standing on the field or at the starting line or, you know, to, to kind of let go of whatever anxiety or frustration they're holding, to remain focused, stay even. Like what you're doing is like setting the stage for flow to happen. 
And it's not going to happen all the time. I don't think flow is a kind of a controllable state in that way. Um, but I do think that we can influence a lot of the factors that contribute to flow. Um, and so, yeah, I really do think that a, uh, an athlete who's been trained in mindfulness is, is most likely going to experience flow more often simply because they've, they've set the stage more often. Yeah, yeah. And that all, whole conversation brings me to mind a uh, sport that I love, uh, that I've mentioned two times before on this podcast, but I love it so much that I will touch upon it again just before going for the last question. Uh, it is it is called Fresco Ball. I don't know if you know the mm. beach rackets. Beach rackets? No. The game. Okay. It's a very fast-paced game okay. where two players don't play against each other. They are... Um, They are collaborating in maintaining a rubber ball in the air, uh, okay. the more fast as uh, possible yeah, yeah. to add adrenaline and and hype for the game. And um, I was just playing with a new partner the other day, and he told me that the professionals uh, that he encountered on Brazil said that he was very agonized playing because he's lacking a consistent breathing. He was too hamped up. And uh, for me in the past, this excitement also was impairing my consistency in the game. The ball would uh, get off, we'd go to the ground. I was missing the timing. And that was, for me, along the time and with these practices on calming myself, on focusing on the ball or on not um, falling through to my partner, um, it was a lesson on composure and breathing and relaxing in moderation. I think that's key in moderation there. Um, because, yeah, I think w when I evolved in the sports and here I, I will bring any other example we can bring uh, on other sports. When we get to the top levels, uh, the technical elements don't make that much of a difference. It's those mental aspects that come into place. And 90 times uh, of those deciding moments uh, and to gain an edge over top-level competitors, I think it involves uh, their psychology and their abilities to stay focused and all of that stuff. Uh, and yeah, I'm just, uh, I'm just derailing here, but... Uh, I don't have a specific question. I just like to look at these qualities uh, one has in in their in his sport as ranges ranges of quality an athlete has in his performance. We were talking of the A game, of the B game, and below. Um, so yeah, many times athletes think that they have this quality and it is not working. So they are blaming something external. They are finding themselves uh, with some guilt of not doing that that well, um, self-criticizing. And yeah, sometimes it seems to make sense in the moment and they seem right for themselves and others, but it's just impairing them, I guess. Yeah. Uh, do you have some comments to add on this? And do you agree with this vision? Yeah. And I mean, I, I think it is easy to fall into that, into that self-criticism trap um, mm -hmm. because there's a, there's a kind of appealing logic to it. Like, I made a mistake. And so if I punish myself for making that mistake, I won't make it again. But it just, it's just not how we work. I mean, even taking the sports aspect out of it and just knowing what the basic research says about reinforcement versus punishment, right? Mm -hmm. Like if you're trying to elicit a behavior, reinforcement works way better than punishment, right? For sure. 
but we have this right. We have this mindset that I do think comes from this very fear-based culture and sport about never wanting to make a mistake, never wanting to be a failure. Um, <clears throat> that like really reinforces, or, or like yeah, really re- reinforces this this track of thinking around. Well, I make a mistake, I punish myself, so I won't make it again. But what I see time and time again is that athletes who get caught in that trap are just more likely to make that mistake. All we're doing is priming ourselves to co- kind of go further down that anxiety hole. Hey you, athlete, student, or worker of some kind, we want to know real cases. So tell us, from what you've heard, what have you been missing out? What is one idea that popped into your mind while listening? Feel free to share in the comments so we can assist you further. See ya! Yeah, uh, uh, and something that can counteract that is just the openness of yes. having some flexibility in thinking because exactly. there are other elements affecting your performance. There are the opponent, there are the tactics, there are the environment, there are the weather, many other things that are not up to you in that moment and you can be better than other times in the future, you can be worse, but overall we hope and you work for improvement. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And we talked about ranges here and not seeing it as a particular singular uh, and unflexible thing in our quality as sportsmen. And I was reminding myself of poker, a poker mm. example. And you said to me, you like very much the game. Yeah, yeah. I have a personal interest on that also. And there we talk about ranges. We don't play. So poker, we, we are dealt two cards and then we play. Uh, against opponents we put chips in and uh, play with the cards that go on the board and if our end is better we can we take the pot the chips and we win but oftentimes just playing super good poker is not about playing my hand because if it was it was just following along some charts and so the metaphor here is the parallel here is not is that we are adjusting our game we are adjusting to other elements we are adjusting to the opponent style we are adjusting to the stacks that there are that they're in in game and um, yeah it's not just about some pre-existing things and not just about the specific result of that play it's much more complex it's yeah. Yeah, I love that. I love that analogy because yeah, it does. It does speak to the complexity of it, um, and I think we can. We can like have this tunnel vision, right? We kind of go onto the field as an athlete with a specific play in mind that we want to make, and when we when we just focus on trying to get this one thing done, we miss. We miss opportunities. Like maybe we're trying to pass to one particular player, and we totally miss the fact that well, this other player is wide open, but because I had my mind set on making this one play. I can't see those other opportunities. And I think, right, mindfulness lets us see the full context, see the big picture and make yeah, so different good. decisions. I think yeah. often more effective decisions. Yeah, so good. Yeah. And coming back to poker, poker is all about decisions. Yes. And, and ranges, uh, I, I miss the, the, the parallel on the, on the world because ranges, the best players play according to ranges. They imagine uh, some wide ranges. They don't. They don't just play with the hand and with the cards in the board. Um, yeah, there's no uh, specific re- recipe for playing yeah. on poker or on any other sports. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, team, uh, going for our last question. Um, I sometimes 
feel that it is challenging because again we have to consider context and the and the particularities on on an athlete but in general for you what's the main pillar for an athlete on an individual standpoint to efficiently work their sports practice huh well i i mean I'm obviously biased as a psychologist and as someone who kind of advocates for this mindfulness-based training, but I, I really think that, you know, the, it's about being mentally sound. Um, you, can, you can be the strongest, the fastest, the one with the most endurance, fine. If your body is capable of doing that, that's great. But if your mind is not capable of kind of letting your body do that, you're never going to perform to your full, full potential. Um, so I think it, yeah, it rests on being like a mentally sound athlete. But I think what that really means is being a mentally sound person, not just looking at yourself as an athlete, but like really, really staying attuned to what I need and how I take care of myself, my relationships outside of sport, right? Like, what, like do I feel happy and healthy in my life? Because I think a happy, calm, content athlete is an athlete who is going to be able to perform better. They're not going to burn out. Uh, they're going to be able to stay dedicated to their training. They're going to stay motivated. Uh, and so I think like there's this attitude in athletics that like, it's like the athlete, the identity of an athlete comes first and then everything else comes second. But I think it's actually the reverse, right? Mm -hmm. We have to treat athletes like whole people and nurture them as whole people. And when we do that, this part of their identity, the athlete part of their identity can get really, really strong. Um, so yeah, it's, it, at the end of the day, to me, it comes down to mental health. Yeah, so much like that. Love it. Yeah, because coming from there, it touches on another three ingredients, uh, having a positive mood, having confidence, feeling relaxed at the right amount uh, are all things that come from there. Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, you also have with your colleagues, Keith and Carol, a book called Mindful Sport Performance Enhancement, Mental Training for Athletes and Coaches. The title couldn't be more straightforward <laughs> than that. I hope it brings some curiosity and excitement to the ones interested. Um, you share their systematic approaches to mental training, uh, for sure. Can you talk more about that and your recent podcast? Sure. Yeah. I mean, uh, I think the book is a great resource. You know, we do outline uh, the, the six sessions that I mentioned before, including scripts of all the exercises and kind of the important topics to cover and how to approach discussions. I mean, we really wanted to make it like a, a very kind of hands-on, easy to follow kind of manual. But in addition to outlining the six sessions and all the contents, you know, we also have chapters about the connection to flow, um, <clears throat> what we call kind of the mental training paradox, why athletes don't do more mental training, even though they all recognize that it's important. Talk about kind of the history of mindfulness in sports, uh, tips for people who are going to lead MSBE, tips for the participants, how to get the most out of it. I mean, we really tried to make a pretty comprehensive resource for people. Um, and, uh, and then, yeah, and through our MSPE Institute, uh, where we've recently released this podcast, uh, which people can find on kind of any of the, any of the kind of platforms they normally find their podcasts on, but it's called the Mindful Sport Performance Podcast, where uh, very much like this, Keith and I sit down and we interview kind of people, experts in the field, sports or mindfulness or, or other domains too. We actually just had a great interview with a, a musician. Uh, who was able to talk a lot about kind of the connection between anxiety and performance and mindfulness and, and how to teach music in an experiential way. Um, so I think this stuff, it just, it's so expansive. It goes so far beyond, beyond sport, but, uh, 
but yeah, I think if anyone is interested in learning a little bit more about it, I think the book would be a great resource. Or if they want to learn more about what other services we offer, they can check us out at um, mindfulsportperformance.org. That's our website for the MSPE Institute. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And just hammering on that mental sound aspect you gave as the main pillar, you were talking to me off the record beforehand mm. about an example of a team of a college team that wasn't able to perform at their usual level on the top of their capacities, much likely because of uh, an aspect that was outside of their awareness or of their coaches, um, that was about grief of the senior class. And uh, yeah, just resume that please for our listeners, because I think it fits so well here and hammering on these clinical aspects uh, of psychology. Uh, yeah, yeah, I, I, I'm glad you brought it back up because I do love that example. Um, yeah, this, this team I've been working with for a number of years, um, they were having some trouble integrating the new class, the first year class, um, to, to, just to the team dynamic. And so I was having a meeting with the coach and the team seniors. And, you know, it could have been a meeting about like strategies to invite participation from these first years and, you know, different kinds of drills that they could do. But as we talked more, I, I started to get the sense that like there was something really important that we weren't talking about. And one of the things that kept coming up with them was like, well, if so-and-so were here, like previous seniors from the past year, they would know how to handle this. Or like, oh, if that, if that class were still around, we wouldn't be having this issue. And, and I realized like, oh, you guys are really sad that these people aren't here anymore. Like you're, you're kind of mourning the loss of this class that mentored you uh, and being able to make that connection for them kind of, it, they immediately started opening up a bunch of them became, started, started crying just like, cause they really got in touch with that. Like, yeah, it's, it's really painful that these people aren't here kind of practicing with us anymore. Um, and being able to process some of that grief really allowed them to open up and then kind of connect more with the first years who then did get better integrated in the team. Um, and so even though when we have, can we approach our sport performance work, you know, we from the MSPE Institute, right, we make a clear distinction between kind of the, the performance consultation versus clinical work. Um, but there, there's this inevitable gray area because the stuff you're doing in your sport interacts with your mental health, right, interacts with the clinical stuff. And so it was like being able to kind of, kind of thread that needle and help them see this really important emotional piece and how it was interfering with their sport performance just ended up being so, so powerful. Yeah, balance those two worlds on intervention. So good, Dr. Tim, very glad to receive you. It was such a pleasure for me to speak with you. And uh, I advise people to see your podcast because you are bringing in some awesome guests and we are on this mission uh, as much like of EWS. Mm -hmm. um, of helping sports agents so people can go there. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, Gonzalo. I really appreciate it. Thank you for listening to this EWS interview. To see more, go to ewsport.eu. If you want to open up a discussion about some topic address, reach out by commenting below or leave a message at ewsport.eu. Hope you enjoyed. See you on the next one.